Happy Tuesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, a show where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of probably the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm your other host, I'm Chris Henry from the EAA Aviation Museum. And with us again, uh, second day in a row, is Chuck Myers from the USS Hornet Sea, Air, and Space Museum. Again, thank you for coming on and being with us. It does seem like only yesterday, Chris. <laughs> it does, it does. <laughs> oh, well, careful, we're going to permanently assign you to come on with us every day. <laughs> you will regret that, I'm sure. <laughs> wow, well, it's, uh, I, I know it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great life in the Navy. I've, I've heard that from every, every sailor I've ever talked to. Um, but I would just want to talk a little bit more about uh, being on an Essex class class ship every day and you were you were stationed on one from 60 61 to 63 so you've had a, you've had a lot of days at sea with the navy I did um, indeed and i don't regret a, a day of it in fact i tell people quite often that i i've forgotten about all the bad things and i only remember all the good things which is a nice nice way to be do you remember your first day on a, an essex class ship what it was like just you know stepping on deck and it wasn't like other. It's not like it other was, places. Yeah, I you know I I grew up in the Midwest and uh, and uh, when I went to Officers Candidate School in Newport, Rhode Island, it was the first time I'd ever been on the East Coast, and so I decided that I I'd like to go to the West Coast and see what that was like, and so they actually sent me out to Long Beach, and I I met the, the Yorktown in July of 1961, and you know the one thing I do remember very vividly was how immense I thought that thing was. I had uh, I had lived for a few years in Marquette, Michigan, and I saw the ore boats on Lake Michigan, and those were pretty massive boats. But when you see an aircraft carrier, it's just like, oh wow! <laughs> and uh, it, 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 in fact, I had that same feeling when when I went aboard the Hornet uh, some ten or so years ago. It was like, you know, literally deja vu all over again. It was just like walking up the 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 gangway on on the Yorktown all those years ago, so it just kind of wipes away, uh, you know, fifty some odd years of of life, and and you're back in a moment when you were 23 years old or whatever, and it, and it's really awesome. It was awesome the first time, and it was awesome the second time. It it, it really it's 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 stunning. I've only been on I've been on the Intrepid, and uh, just seeing it from from the ground, it's just this wall of steel, <laughs> yeah. and it's a you know, it's blocks long either way you look. <laughs> uh, it's it's just mind-boggling. Uh, your first position, you were a, you were a bridge officer. So what? what... I, my my real day job was uh, for some reason when I was at Officer Candidate School. Uh, when they ask you what you want to do when you uh, be, uh, get commissioned, I said, well, I think I'd like to go to the West Coast and be on a large combatant, which meant cruiser carrier, at that point in time. Uh, and for reasons that I can't explain to this day, I said, I think I'd like to go to justice school. And so uh, after I was commissioned, uh, my next assignment was six weeks at U.S. Naval Justice School. And um, basically they taught you the uh, Uniform Code of Military Justice and then uh, procedures and, and some 
uh, basic fundamentals of law in, in six weeks. And uh, so I, uh, when I went aboard the, the Yorktown, I was uh, uh, an assistant legal officer. There were three of us in the, in the legal office at the time. And uh, some, some magical thing happened where the assistant navigator uh, decided that I should be uh, included on, on the bridge watches. And I, s I don't know how that actually happened. I just know that he was the guy that did it. And so uh, being a legal officer was kind of mundane in most respects, but being a bridge officer was, uh, was rather, well, I, I tell people on the Hornet that it probably was the most responsible job I ever had in my life. I had a lot <laughs> bigger budgets. I had um, a lot more people reporting directly to me, but I never had an aircraft carrier under my command, and I never had eight destroyers that I could tell what to do after I was about 25 years old. So when you're 23 and you're, you know, suddenly you're up there and the, the captain is, is in his sea cabin or whatever, and it's you that's responsible for that, uh, for that uh, array of ships and, and particularly for your carrier, it, it really is uh, it's awe-inspiring to say the least. Do you remember your first watch there? Oh, God, do I remember my first <laughs> watch. <laughs> uh, you know, basically uh, there were four junior officers on the bridge. And it was a, it was a, eight to, to midnight watch, uh, and we had a, a launch scheduled uh, right around eight fifteen. At the time, the Yorktown, well, f for my entire service on the Yorktown at that time, it was, its main mission was anti-submarine. So we were we were there to combat the the vast uh, array of submarines that the Soviets had at the time. So the plane that was being launched was what we called a Guppy. It was a Sky Raider. Chris, you'll probably be familiar with Sky Raiders because oh, it's been yeah. around for oh, yeah. 100 years. Well, the Sky Raider in this case was an AD-5W, and it had a huge ray dome on the bottom of it that was allegedly capable of finding a periscope. And uh, so we put the, the AD-5 on the port catapult, and I'm standing over in the, on the starboard corner of the bridge, and everybody told me to stay out of the way and just watch and learn. So uh, when we launched that aircraft, uh, the, the pilot knew immediately that he got what we call a cold cat shot. In other words, the catapult didn't fire completely. And so with the hydraulic catapults in particular that we had on those classes of ships in that, in that time frame, you knew immediately when, when the, the catapult wasn't uh, giving you a full thrust because it gave you a really huge kick in the pants to start with and then bled out a little bit as it, as it uh, went down the track of the catapult. So the pilot, uh, and there were two people in the plane. There was a pilot and a, a radar officer. Uh, the pilot knew immediately that the catapult hadn't fired uh, like he wanted it to, and so he was standing on his brakes as he's going down the track of the catapult. You could see sparks flying from his uh, from his brake shoes as he's going down, and he got to the, the, the port side edge of the flight deck at the end of the catapult, and he teeter-tottered for about 10 seconds, and it looked like, oh, we're going to, oh, you know, back and forth, and then finally he went into the water. And uh, so lots of things happened immediately on the bridge, and we, we turned directly into him so that we wouldn't run over him with the screws. Uh, and uh, eventually what happened was that the uh, what we call the plane guard destroyer that was about a thousand yards astern of us picked up both of the of the two officers that were in the in the AD, 
And uh, so the, the very first thing that I got to do as a bridge officer was I got to send a signal to the, the plane guard destroyer, which happened to be the Maddox, as I recall. You may remember that name from the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. Um, the Maddox picked them up. They were wet and irritated, but they were not <laughs> harmed at all. And so um, the captain of the Yorktown uh, told the officer of the deck to uh, send a message to the destroyer uh, telling them to splice the main brace. So my first immediate thing that I had to do was look in the Allied Naval Signaling Book to find out what the mnemonic was for splice the main brace. And it turns out to be Bravo X-ray. So I sent a, a first radio telephone signal I ever sent as a bridge officer was to tell the destroyer to give those two guys a drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. So if you ever hear a Bravo X-ray, um, you know, hoist one. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Wow. Well, it's a, a great introduction. <laughs> yes, it was. Being on the bridge. Um, wow. Uh, that's that's stunning. So uh, I was I, my only familiarity with uh, with anti-submarine uh, planes were the P-3 Orion. I used to live near. Uh, uh, gosh, uh, well, uh, I was in I was in uh, Horsham. Pennsylvania, and we had a, a naval base there, a mm. uh, naval air station, and they used to fly P-3 Orions out, which uh, I don't know if they went back as far as the 60s on the on the P-3. Uh, no, we had P-2Vs in the 60s. The, the Orion was the uh, was actually the, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the name of the airliner that was. Uh, oh, yeah, the, uh, um, oh. Come on, Chris, you gotta you got to help me out here. Yeah, yeah, it's the... Uh, <laughs> Isn't it the Electra? The old Electra, Electra thank yeah. you, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Uh, and they came Wait, along... I beat the plane guy on that one. What? You did, <laughs> Never happens. you did. <laughs> and now there's a, there's a whole new class of aircraft that they've got out there now that replaced the, the P-3 Orion. Uh, on, the, on the Yorktown, uh, for uh, anti-submarine purposes, we carried uh, three different kinds of aircraft. We carried two of those... Uh, 85W Sky Raiders with a big ray dome on. And then we had a, a two squadrons of S2s. We called them S2Fs at the time, uh, or Stoofs. And they had uh, MAD gear, uh, magnetic anomaly detection gear. So they had a big tail stinger that they that they let out. And they, they flew low over the surface of the water and detected uh, magnetic anomalies below the surface. Uh, they also carried sonobuoys, just like the Orions did, and, and current current aircraft do. And so, if you get a radar con, or a, I'm sorry, a, a mad gear contact, then you drop sonobuoys around the contact so that you could listen for the for the uh, submarine. And then, in addition to that, we had uh, helicopters on board that had dipping sonar, and so they they could fly out, dip, listen, pick up, you know, move away, and so on. And so that's kind of the way uh, we operated. And the, the the trick at the time was that if you found a particularly a diesel, a Soviet diesel submarine, you played with them until he had to snorkel because that that, that way you have won the game, you know. <coughs> <laughs> that's a, that's uh, incredible. <laughs> uh, one thing I've I've always wondered. I know there there was there, it's almost as we were talking about yesterday that you've got a you've got basically you're running an airport on top of a on top of a ship. Um, the ship the the ship operations and uh, and the air the airport operations are run by 
two different teams of people. Uh, how much interaction went on between the two? I mean, did you did you all stay stay to yourselves, or how was there a lot of interaction between the the, the deck crew and the and the rest of the ship ship operations? Well, the the way it worked was the you had an operations organization that was responsible for doing what the what the ship did need to need to launch or when it needed to launch or recover aircraft. So that's all part of the ship's company. So the air boss, for example, is one of the senior uh, officers on, on the ship's company. When you are out at sea with, with squadrons aboard, you bring aboard, in our case, we brought aboard uh, three full squadrons and, and what was called the detachment. That was, that was the two 85Ws. And all of those were um, separately commanded by uh, their their own commanding officer. But when they were on the, on the carrier, uh, they were under the um, the command of uh, the carrier air group commander. We called him CAG. And uh, everybody, uh, well, for example, the, the officers ate in the same wardroom. Uh, things. Uh, we're, we're pretty cozy with everybody. Uh, we did give each other a, a lot of static about different things. So I told you, and I think in our previous episode that, or maybe it, maybe I didn't, that uh, you know, uh, we black shoes, in other words, non-aviators, always kidded the aviators about the fact that we knew what they did for their flight pay, but we didn't know what they did for their base pay. So that, <laughs> that, that kind of ragging on each other went on a lot, but. Uh, just to give you another example, uh, each of the squadrons, when they were operating on a naval air station, had their own legal officer as part of their command. When they came aboard the, the Yorktown, in this case, they gave that responsibility to the, uh, the shipboard uh, legal officer team. So uh, they, it, it was integrated in, in many ways, uh, but generally speaking, uh, the, the most junior officers in the squadrons had a separate uh, berthing area from the ship's company officers. We called them, both of them, we called uh, junior officers berthing or J-O-Bs or sometimes the junior officers jungle, but they were, they were separate entities. Uh, but we ate together. Uh, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty fraternal, but it was, you know, we, we gave each other gas whenever we could about that. And just, just as we gave gas to the, the two Marine officers that were on board a carrier at the time with their, with their Marine detachment. So uh, fun rivalries were basically the, the, the rule of the day, I guess you'd say. Uh, um, it, when, when, you were on, when you were on the ship during, uh, after, we, as we were talking in the movie, uh, uh, Jim Lovell was flying a Banshee, but they were, those were the F-2s that were later replaced by uh, the Grumman uh, Cougars. Were, were the Cougars on board when you were No, there we did. We, uh, the only jet aircraft that we had on board uh, Yorktown at the time were uh, A-4 Sky, uh, <laughs> Skyhawks. Okay. Uh, and we did do, um, when we were uh, operating for training purposes, like we did periodically off the California coast, we did do... Uh, carrier qualifications for some squadrons, but um, for the most part, uh, the only thing we had on board uh, were a few A4s from time to time, and then the, the aircraft that I described, the anti-submarine aircraft that we had. Oh. Now, uh, you were not a you were not a Naval Academy graduate. Um, I certainly wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm just wondering, uh, the how did that affect your career in the Navy? Not be, I, I'm, it, it seems to me like that's the fast track that it, people are in, they're in the academy. They get more of the more of the slots and things. Did it affect you not being a, an academy alum? Not that I not that I was aware of. Um, we we didn't have a whole lot of um, junior officers that were academy graduates. I can only think of two or three. Uh, when I was on the Yorktown, most of them were uh, NROTC, um, a few from the academy, and then probably after NROTC would be um, officer's candidate school like I went to. So, but in terms of did it make a difference? I, yes, it probably makes a difference, but not at my, not at my level. I mean, at, at some point in time, uh, you know what we called the ring knockers were were going to do better for the most part than the rest of us because they had the um, the education and and the contacts, uh, but it it really didn't affect anything uh, in from the time I was uh, an ensign to when I left as a lieutenant in 1966. Wow, but what an what an amazing time to be there. I mean, all everything going on. And uh, and you saw a lot of the techno technological changes happening. I mean, you, watching a Polaris missile and a, and, and nuclear depth charges, um, just the the technology just in the, just in the years you were in the Navy must have been significant from when you came in to when you went out. Yeah, it was a it was certainly a time of transition because in uh, you know when I first uh, got into uh, the Navy, there was very little that was done with uh, with computers and. Uh, over time, uh, you would have had a, you know, a fairly sophisticated computer room on an Essex-class carrier, so uh, where we have our, a lot of our admin uh, functions on the museum uh, in today's world, uh, those were, were in part uh, were computer rooms that had, well, they not terribly sophisticated stuff at the time, but certainly they had key punches and, and card readers, and they had uh, uh, things like 1401 uh, computers and, and uh, printers and that kind of thing. Uh, so over the course of uh, 1961 to 1970, when the Hornet went out of service, uh, a rather amazing amount of changes. Wow, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stunning thing to see. And you know, it, it, the great thing is, is that we still have uh, museums like the Hornet where you can experience this in person. Well, hopefully someday soon you can experience this in person. We certainly in person. hope so, yeah. And uh, it, it is uh, something to see. And uh, as, as you said, there's, there's examples of it uh, coast to coast or on, on, on opposite coast uh, and, and in the Gulf. Uh, I know you don't, you don't have any plans yet as we're recording this during the, during the pandemic year. Are there any plans yet on reopening the Hornet? Or We are, are, are doing an awful lot of things to study what we can do because we know we're going to have to change the way we do business, at least for some period of time. And... Um, so we're thinking about all of the things that are important. So in, in today's, or let's go back six months. Six months ago, if you were on the Hornet on a Friday night or a Saturday night, you'd probably see uh, something upwards of uh, to as many as 500 Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts on board for an overnight visit, for example, what we call our liveaboard programs. Uh, that's obviously a significant revenue source uh, that isn't going to come back very soon, I wouldn't think. Uh, I, you know, I can't imagine parents being really 
excited about having their kids go and stay in a, in a traditional 1960s era uh, set of uh, enlisted birthing areas uh, overnight, for example. So we're yeah. thinking about all the things that we have to do to uh, change the way we do business and uh, you know, try to attract uh, people in, in ways that we haven't really done very much of up to this point. Wow. Well, there there is a lot of room for people to stay six feet apart on, on the Hornet. <laughs> that's that's quite true. You know, one of the things that we can do, obviously, in, at least in my view, on how the governor and the, the county officials might not agree with me, but for example, the flight deck is certainly, uh, you know, an open area. Uh, the hangar deck is uh, we can we can raise all the curtains in the hangar deck, and it's pretty much open as well. So there are lots of places that we think that we can do s a reasonable social distancing without. Uh, any compromise whatsoever, but it's it's not up to us. It's up to the people who are uh, having to deal with the overall pandemic. Well, I know I know Chris and I want to come out some <laughs> someday. Well, so absolutely, you have an invitation. Be my I, guest. I appreciate that very much. And yeah, appreciate Chris, it. And Chris running the uh, the museum back in Oshkosh. He's he's got he's he's well aware of of the problems in trying to reopen. So. <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, we're. We're trying to work on that as well at the same time. <laughs> you know, one of the things, Chris, that uh, uh, I, I used to run the Speakers Bureau for the Hornets, so we would go out and talk to, uh, you know, Kiwanis or Lions Club or whatever. And one of the, the more interesting venues that I did over the, uh, the year before uh, this one was uh, we had a couple of uh, EAA groups out here that wanted to hear from the Hornet. And those were pretty interesting uh, oh, speakers awesome. engagements. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, I bet that would be a that'd be a fun night for sure. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's a, it's a pro I mean, any of these the EAA branches that are around, it's amazing how many people there have have their own stories to tell. So going going to a local EAA meeting when whenever and they're allowed, now, uh, crazy which, airplanes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's wild. It, it, and uh, Chris's museum has has some really uh, stunners in the. Just walking in the lobby, I I can't think of the. The, the many acrobatic planes that they have and they're usually displayed half upside down and things so it's yeah. <laughs> well the whole Oshkosh experience is something else too yeah yeah and hopefully we'll be able to get back to that next year so we'll yeah. see uh, well, well Chuck thank you so much for being on the show it's uh it's always great when I mean, there's with this movie we've had so many different uh, uh, byways to talk to talk about things and and I, I always love talking Navy stuff. Uh, but thank you so much for being on on the show. Uh, thank you for your service in the Navy, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to get out and see the Hornet uh, now and and in the future. But I, we're just gonna have to wait for a bit. Well, for sure. And when you do the uh, when you do one of these for the uh, 2019 version of Midway, give me another call, will you? Hey, oh, absolutely. please, yeah, you you're right. <laughs> you're on the list. Okay. Well, thanks so much again. Uh, My pleasure, well, guys. Well, for folks who uh, who would like to uh, to talk about this some more, uh, we're always available on social media. Please check us out on Facebook at Apollo Thirteen uh, Minute. Uh, dot, I'm sorry, on fa Facebook we're on Apollo Thirteen Minutes uh, Mission Control, and uh, of course on the big site Apollo Thirteen Minute Apollo One Three Minute dot com, uh, and where you can pick up any of our previous hundred and six episodes. Uh, we're always available online on uh, for podcasts. Uh, you can subscribe and get us on Google Play or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wh wherever you catch your normal uh, podcast. That's where we'll probably be at. Um, it looks like we're coming up on uh, Lost of Signal in about 30 seconds, so we'll be back here tomorrow, Wednesday, on the Apollo 13 Minute.